0: How do you fit back into life after war, and what does a life of conscientious objection to war spanning almost a century look like?
1: We'll also speak with Dominican-American poet Rina Espaillat, and we'll be talking with her about a new poetry competition Plough has created in her honor. I'm Susanna Black, senior editor at Plough. I'm Peter Momsen, editor of the Plough Quarterly, and this is the Ploughcast.
0: So this is the third episode in a six-part series on nonviolence, the violence of love, Uh, our recent issue, make sure you look us up and give us a follow on your podcast platform of choice.
1: And while you're at it, subscribe to Plow. Susanna, uh, the first two articles we want to meet are both by contributors called Scott. Scott Beauchamp, he's an Iraq veteran uh, who wrote an article for us, Did You Kill Anyone? And Scott Button, uh, who wrote an article about his grandfather and about the story of the Bruderhof. It's called A Life That Answers War. The story of conscientious objection and the Bruderhof. Scott is a member of the Bruderhof and is also a lawyer and uh, tells the story of 100 years of people living out an alternative to war. So I think it's kind of interesting uh, that we're talking about a piece both by a veteran talking about why people go to war and another piece that at least implicitly is talking about why people don't go to war.
0: Yeah. And one of the strange things about reading those two pieces in in tandem, aside from the fact that I feel like this segment of the podcast should be called the Scottcast, is um, that there's there's something extraordinarily similar between um, the sort of, even the impulses behind Scott Beauchamp, friend of the pod, Scott Beauchamp's um, decision to go to war and um, Scott Button's grandfather's decision to persistently not go to war. Um, and that similarity is fascinating to me.
1: Well, it is. And, you know, that the similarity boils down to, you know, spoiler alert is a search for meaning, right? Um, but before we talk about that, there's actually something I want to get to first, and that there's another similarity with both these articles, and that is that war and conscientious objection both seem almost to be irrelevant to a lot of people. That comes out both in both articles as well. So although we've been fighting the so-called forever wars, uh, this year marks 20 years since 9-1-1. And uh, Congress is looking at the AUMF and there's talk of, you know, drawing down U.S. forces in other countries. Still, war has almost never felt more distant from most people's lives. And so how is it that war matters? Whether, you know, uh, we have a professional military, so... Most people aren't signing up and, and enlisting and serving. Um, that also means that conscientious, conscientious objection to war, which used to be a huge, huge, huge issue if you think of World War One, World War II, actually all the way back to the Revolutionary War, now seems this almost quaint historical artifact that uh, doesn't make a lot of difference, right? People don't burn their draft cards. They don't run to Canada. Uh, whether or not you want to serve in the military makes almost zero difference in most Western societies, to how people view you. Uh, and that's actually a problem that emerges from both these articles, is that war is happening, right? War is being fought in our name. People are getting killed in our name. And yet, to most of us, it seems kind of theoretical.
0: Almost a lifestyle choice.
1: You do it if you want to, if it makes you happy, right?
0: Yeah, or if it's or if it's part of your kind of life path. Your path of self-actualization, and the strange thing is that if war becomes a sort of lifestyle cho- choice or a career choice, then pacifism or um, conscientious objection, rather in the in the sense of Scott Button's grandfather's life, also becomes less of an existential choice and more of a a, a position or a like a, a belief, but not something that you are um, that kind of grabs you by your throat and leads you into essentially a life of adventure through following this, um, this principle, which is essentially not entirely a principle in an abstract way, but is loyalty to a, a different commander, loyalty to Christ.
1: So what used to be for, for centuries a really foundational and controversial uh, position that I will never kill anyone, now is sort of equivalent to saying, well, I, I prefer not to eat at McDonald's. I'd rather, you know you know, eat at some, you know, more fair tradey or more animal-friendly operation. It's not without moral import, but it really does seem more, like you said, like a lifestyle choice, like almost a consumerist thing. Um, I'm the kind of person who prefers not to go to war. Uh, And I really, really love... Uh, Scott Beauchamp's piece is an excerpt from his forthcoming book of the same title, uh, Did You Kill Anyone? And it's uh, questions they ask veterans coming home from war. And I just found this really compelling because he goes through all the questions that people are asked, asking him uh, implicitly and explicitly about why go to war. And then the questions or the answers that people who actually serve give. And he basically comes down at the end of this, this piece, which is just beautifully, beautifully crafted writing, that uh, those, those answers, uh, for instance, I joined because my father and grandfather and his father, before I'm all served, my kids needed health care. I wanted money for college. I'm reading now. Uh, my uncle wants me to be a police officer, like him, and he said this is the best way to go about it. Underneath each of these answers was a basic agreement, usually about the honor of the venture. No one joins the military just for money or solely out of love of family. It's too profound and uniquely complex a sacrifice for that. And when a young person tells you he enlisted for adventure, what he really means is that he went on a quest for meaning our popular vocabulary being too anemic to support the weight of a desire simultaneously so necessary and recondite. We don't have the words to describe our hunger. We struggle to articulate both the depth of our appetite and what might be required to seat it. And there are a lot of people why reasons why people join up. Some are unutterable, and of those that we can express, many contradict each other. When it comes to something like swearing loyalty to a warring army during a time of combat, Motivations can't necessarily be seen through a Manichaean lens. So I tried to think of the question that Brooklynites should have asked me if they really wanted to understand something so alien to them. A question that doesn't emit vague antagonism, but one that could possibly draw us closer together and that we could both learn from. Something that would help us understand each other. One day, the question posed itself to me. Do you miss it?
0: The interesting thing that that particular selection brought out, I think was, um, he's really kind of talking about two different cultures and the way that they understand what it means to go to war. Like he's got this kind of culture of origin where going to war is seen as a a sort of a normal thing that you would do. And also a thing that or joining the army, at least is seen as a, a normal thing that you would do. And also something that has an intrinsic value to it. Um, and then, uh, he's also talking about his kind of like Brooklyn friends later on, his kind of, um, he describes them as, you know, people who read Zizek and the hairpin and Zadie Smith and Walter Benjamin and, and Tintin, um, and have Ikea shelves, Tintin, t- oh. Tintin fine. <laughs> and have Ikea shelves, um, you know, in Red Hook or somewhere. And, uh, he found that people, um, who he was talking to and who he described to whom he, you know, told his story that he had been to war. There was this, like, wh- why would you do that? Like, why would you do that? What it it's completely alien. And um, as you said, you know, as you read at the end, the um, he was try- He he spent a lot of time trying to figure out what it was that they should be asking him in order to find out um, what it was that he was getting at in going in, in joining the army and going to war. And the do you miss it question, which he puts in their mouths and he says basically like if you Brooklynites want to understand what it was to me to to join the army and to go to war, what you should be asking me is do you miss it? And that's just fascinating. Um, and the whole rest of the book, which you guys should read, is um, is kind of a further exploration of that.
1: I really love this book. And I think... What's great about it is it's one of those slim books that sticks in your mind more than many fat books. Uh, it's it's just so so nicely written. Do you do you think it's true, Susanna, that we don't have the words to describe the hunger for meaning?
0: Um, I mean, I first of all, I think there's a little bit of a gender difference. Um, I can, re- I mean, I certainly think that. I had the hunger for meaning when I was growing up, part of my conversion was, um, like confronting that and trying to figure out like following that hunger back to its source. Um, I think that we do kind of have a psychologized version of that language. Like, you know, even a kind of Jordan Peterson, um, you know we, you know, we understand that there is a kind of need for self-actualization or something, but self-actualization, as we were talking about before, is something a little bit different than getting caught up into something that you kind of, um, you know, you can say yes or no to, but it's not a morally neutral choice. And it's not just a kind of like, you know, I think this will give me meaning. I'm going to start doing Pilates, um, or soul cycle or something. Um, I, I do think that there is a lack of language of obligation in the, that we've got. And instead of that language of obligation, which really leads to meaning, we've got a language of self-actualization. And that's where we look for me, meaning. And I'm not sure that you can really find meaning there.
1: Yeah, it's funny that a lot of the military's uh, recruitment advertising actually leans pretty heavily on the language of self-actualization. Um, you know, you remember back in the nineties, the whole be all you can be campaigns. Um, When actually what Scott's talking about here, and and this is something that I, as a pacifist can absolutely relate to. Um, And if it's a gendered thing, I think possibly most guys are absolutely looking for is a a venture that has an intrinsic honor to which I can swear my loyalty. Um, And, find sort of a meaning and substance to my own life in that to which I give myself. You know, that, that ties into the the Scott Button piece on conscientious objection, because ironically, uh, the motivation is really similar, right? Uh, to, to join the army, especially nowadays when you're not drafted into it, and it is a, a decision, uh, an individual decision, is more similar uh, to the, the decision conscientious objectors made, say, in World War II, where you were standing up against an entire society that was telling you the only honorable you know way to comport yourself is to join the military. and you were saying, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, and you were actually going to willingly be called a coward, uh, willingly put up with, you know, all kinds of drama and difficulty and, and sometimes prison, in order to, uh, do something different. And, it, you know, what's really cool that comes out of this uh, Scott's Buttons article is the lengths that these young men would go in World War II to show that they were not cowards, right? They, they willingly entered medical experiments. They worked their butts off um, fighting fires, you know, uh, fire jumping, uh, really strenuous work. They, they served, you know, years and years in these uh, CPS camps, some of them were the super principled ones, you know, were, were actually locked up for years. And I knew a bunch of these guys as older, older men. Uh, my grandfather was one of them. He his two older brothers. He was a Wisconsin farm boy and his two older brothers, one went to the Air Force, one went to the Navy. And he, as Lutheran farm boy in Wisconsin, for some reason, as, as a 20 year old felt he, he can't kill and doesn't go to war. His brothers come back, work him over. His mother, who's Mennonite, actually works him over. Uh, go, go, go to the army. And, uh, you know, she was pretty proud. You know, she has a son who's flying a, a pontoon plane and another son who's, uh, you know, doing pretty well in his naval career. And here's this guy who's just making us all look bad. And his dad, who is this sort of old Midwestern socialist, listened to the fight for about two hours and said, you know, son, um, uh, you're doing the right thing and kind of shut the rest of the family down. And he went down to CPS camp, uh, civilian public service camp, which Scott tells about in his, his piece here uh, for a whole bunch of years. And it was life changing, but we digress. Uh, Scott's piece is actually not about uh, American conscientious objectors so much as about the story of my community, the the Bruderhof and particularly his grandfather uh, who happens to be my next door neighbor, Jakob Guniding, uh, now in his eighties, and his wife Juliana, who's a Paraguayan woman of, of with indigenous roots, um, and their story and how it's incomprehensible without conscientious objection. So this this quaint sounding issue absolutely shaped their lives. And it's it's a pretty great framing uh, for to talk about war. Uh, I found, uh, in a way that ties into that quest for meaning that Scott Beauchamp talked about in his, in his piece on military service.
0: The thing that really struck me about Button's piece, which, you know, it's a saga. It is the saga of the Bruderhof encapsulated in the story of one man. And it's basically, you know, one way to look at it is, look at it is that he enlisted. He enlisted, you know, in Christ's service early on. And that took him places and there's no, like, there was no kind of like way to, because of his understanding of what that meant and what he had to do in order to be loyal um, and faithful to, you know, to that commitment, there was no opting out. And every sort of twist and turn of, you know, living in Germany and then living in, um, England and then living in Paraguay and then going to America, like this incredibly adventurous life, an incredibly physically strenuous and dangerous life, um, was essentially a life that was not that was dedicated to a kind of um, you know service. And we, we, say, we use the word service and it kind of can sound mealy mouthed. But if we think of the service of Christ as a kind of military service, that you enlist in and then you're kind of stuck. And um I think you know obviously St. Paul used this metaphor a, a ton and so many saints have since. Um I think that like we need to kind of take it seriously as something that we sign up for and then we're kind of stuck and we we are not allowed to go AWOL And figuring out what that means from, you know, from day to day and year to year is a kind of That's the next question. But, um, you know, Christianity is not like a lifestyle choice and it's not like a quest for self-actualization exactly. It's, it's something that, um, you know, you're in it and then you don't know where it's going to take you and you can't, and there are no guarantees ahead of time. And that no guarantees thing sure played itself out dramatically in Scott's grandfather's life.
1: It's a great little quote that Scott Button puts at the end of his piece from uh, George Fox. He was the Englishman who, in the 16th century, founded the Quakers, the Society of Friends. And he he said, you know, if we're, they're of course pacifists, and he said, if we're not gonna fight, we must live in such a way in the virtue of that life and power that took away the occasion of all wars. Um, Live a life in the virtue of that life and power that took away the occasion of all wars. So if you're not going to serve, if you say, I'm not going to kill, you can't rest sort of on your uh, moral laurels. You actually have to find that, that cause, that venture um, to give yourself to. And George Fox, you know, we were talking in one of our earlier episodes, Suzanne, and, and you kind of mentioned it uh, in referring to St. Paul, he was not legalistic about his pacifism. So when William Penn, who was a nobleman, uh, came to him and he was attracted and wanted to join the Quakers, uh, William Penn, who founded Pennsylvania. But of course, back then, as an aristocrat, he needed to carry a sword uh, as just part of your normal
0: uh, everyday you
1: Dress as an aristocrat. And he asked, he asked uh, George Fox, can I still carry my sword? And, uh, George Fox replied to him, carry your sword as long as you can bear it. So, uh, William Penn wore his sword for a little while longer. And then at some point felt the conviction, no, I've given my life to something else. And now I can put my sword away. Um, and it's, that's the nature of the, the Christian pacifism that, um, at least the the men and women that Scott Button tells about in his piece on the Bruderhof, you know, I think we're living for. Um, I just love, love George Fox and those early Quakers. There's just something so down to earth and um, radical, but also very human and natural and uncoercive about their, their way of following Jesus and, and talking about questions of violence.
0: So this is the part of the podcast where we uh, kind of catch each other and you guys up on what our doings are. Um, I'm kind of the plow ambassador to, I don't know, downstate slash New York um, slash the rest of the world or something. Normally, I would be probably, I don't know, leaving my house, but we don't do that anymore. I mean, we kind of do. But I don't in particular do that now because I have a little bit of the COVID and um so I am in self-isolation pretty strictly. I'm doing fine. Um, but what I am doing this week, and what you know, the Plow, the broader Plow community, I guess, is doing this week is I've hassled a bunch of um, the, I would say, sort of like weird Christian New York City girl gang into watching the Audrey Hepburn, Cary Grant movie charade with me. So, we're going to be having a charade watching party, and I'm pretty excited about that. But it's also kind of lame because we're just going to be like all zooming with each other because nobody can come near me because I'm a plague victim.
1: Well, get better soon, Susanna. And, you know, since we are still in COVID tide and vaccines aren't really there yet, you might as well just push the whole COVID, you know, Zoom thing a few more times, right? So, Ashley, my, uh, I thankfully don't have coronavirus, but what I did uh, this last week up here uh, in the Bruderhof, so I'm the upstate mouse to your downstate mouse. Uh, as a little coronavirus related, because normally uh, the 7th and 8th class in the school my son goes to here in the Bruderhof community uh, will go down to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in this time of year. But since that's not possible, uh, instead we went to the mountains with a bunch of snowshoes and it was like 15 degrees in the Adirondacks and we brought our backpacks and we went camping last week so it was really really cold basically all we did was we snowshoed in made our tent cooked some rice got cold got in our sleeping bags slept as long as possible got colder got up we really cold, and so on. That's sort of how it went. It was all about just sort of gradually losing energy, but it was really, really fun, and the kids were absolutely pumped um, coming back. So it was really fun, and uh, I'm still just warming up. We better get to the second half of this podcast, which is where we get to meet the acclaimed Dominican-American poet, Rina Espallat and whose name Plough is just launching uh, a new poetry award. And we include an interview with her in our new issue, as well as uh, three poems, two of them bilingual. She writes in both Spanish and English. So welcome, Rena, to the Plowcast. We are so privileged to have you here with us. And I wonder if you could start, Rena, with reading one of the poems that is in our new issue um, to us. And as the father of two girls. I really loved uh, your poem, A Backward Look.
2: A Backward Look. The perfect girls our mama's meant to rear seldom appear or never now. Back in my time wherever some clever daughter mouthed off in public or defied the social guide or thought she could with arguments debate her elders fate Mama took her aside, not to upset her, but teach her better. Be quiet, sit, don't make me say it twice. Prickly advice. Some of us turned out much like Mama, though. A silent no crept into every dialogue and kept some secrets swept into dark corners. But different altogether, sons prospered whether they matched a pattern set by father, mother, or chose some other, all by themselves. From the adventurings of ruthless kings or buccaneers or gods from pagan days, with papa's praise and mama's pride, everybody enjoys rearing their boys. Do they break things, mess up, fight, swear, and spit? Get over it.
1: That's a wonderful poem. I have two daughters and I really appreciated reading it. It kind of was an education for a father. I was
2: like this with my father. Mm-hmm. Father was one of the joys of my life. But <clears throat> with your mother, you kind of have a little, a little tension that is good for you because it teaches you a lot of things.
1: You know, it kind of gathered that, that you, you and your father were close from the interview that you did with uh, A.M. Juster, Mike Astrew, our poetry editor. That really shone through. Uh, could you talk a little bit more about what it was like growing up with your parents? And did they contribute at all to your interest in poetry?
2: Oh, yes, they encouraged it very much. They loved poetry. They were book, book people altogether. They were always reading whenever they had a free moment, out came the book. So I learned early in life that this was something that people did, that not just you were given assignments to do it, that, that you, you, get, you caught at the chance to do it. So I, that was that was wonderful. A lot of wonderful things from my parents. The fact that uh, they talked about the books they read afterward. I grew up with that. And you don't always see that with, with, with adults, but they were forever, um, why did he do that? You know, in chapter three, it sounds as if he's going to do this, but then later he disappoints you and he does the other things. They spoke about Dostoevsky novels, for example, as if they were real life. Mm-hmm. And uh, who, who else was it they loved? Oh, there's so many, so many uh, novelists and poets in particular that they talked about all the time, as if they were family. So I grew up with that. That was great.
0: Which poets in particular can you remember? What were the earliest poets that you remember?
2: Well, they loved Sor Juana. Around? Sor Juana Ines de la Cruz. They, you know, the, the Mexican nun. She mm. was, and she really, she's one of the two great first poets of the Americas. I think she and Emily Dickinson were the two first great poets of this continent, this double continent. Um, And I'm always tempted to write a book about, not about, but translations of their work, the two of them together.
1: One part of it that intrigued me too was when she stopped being a poet. The way that she uh, obeyed her superiors, I'm not sure how willingly, and uh, sort of died as a poet, uh, but then continued to serve people in, in a different form?
2: She died shortly after that, you know, she, mm. caught, she caught the illness, she caught the plague that she was, that she was getting the other nuns through. And of course, it's wonderful to be helpful to others. But when you are, when you have a mission like that, to write the way she wrote, to dig into things with language the way she could do, it was such a shame that she was forced to do it. She really was forced. It was cruel. It was cruel. And she and she died uh, because, I think because she wanted to.
1: She couldn't carry out her, her mission in life.
2: That's right. That's right. That was her gift. You know, it's like the little drummer. That was her drum. Poetry was her drum.
1: Do you have a favorite poem by Sor Juana?
2: Oh, they're all favorites. I love them all. But let me find something by... Uh... By Sorvana, who is a nun, but not because she felt she had that mission, but because she wanted to be left alone and not bugged by the world. And if you're a nun, it's considered that you're living a good life and that you're doing what God wants you to do, therefore you don't have to be watched all the time and bugged by other people. So that's, that's what she did.
1: A pragmatic nun.
2: <laughs> a pragmatic nun, yes, and also, it was a good way to get her mail, her mail straight through, because her friends would send her all the scientific news of the world, from Spain, from Argentina, from the advanced countries. So she would have all of this, and this was the other place where her heart really lived. She loved science. They would send her devices that had been invented, and she, that was one of the things that. Um, that they made her give up, not only her writing, but also all of her books and all of her scientific devices and all of her scientific treatises. It's as if somebody had pulled out your eyes. Hmm. I know that if somebody said to me, in order to be saved, you're going to have to give up all your books and all your writings, I'd say, good, kill me now. Hold Hmm. my sword and I will run on it.
1: Which is what she did, more or less.
2: That's right. Yes, it's what she did. How cruel. Here it is. Here's one. This is called To Hope, A La Esperanza, To Hope. Green spell that so beguiles humanity. Unreasoning hope, gilded delirium, dream that the sleepless dream, unrescued from the fantasy of fortunes not to be. Soul of the world, old age, dressed handsomely, Imaginary blossoming of some bare branch. The lucky man's today to come tomorrow, says the luckless man, for me. Let them who will follow and live for you. Those who, green spectacles, pursue in vain chimeras they create and trust too much. Saner about my fate, I keep my two eyes in my two hands. And find it plain, there's nothing I can see but what I touch. That's a dangerous poem.
1: Well, she just loves the, she she loves the world she finds herself in, it seems.
2: Yes, she does.
1: And she's going to live a real life.
2: She's going to live a real life, and yet she has other poems in which she writes to the world directly. And she says, in, in effect, I don't think that one's here, but she says, in effect, why are you bothering me? Why are you annoying me when all I'm doing is minding my own business and doing what I can do well? She says, I have no interest in riches. I have no interest in fancy clothing or 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 jewelry. I have no interest in what the world considers delight. My delight is what I do. Why are you bugging me for doing it well? Because that's what that's what the Inquisition had against her, you know. The fact that she had she had the nerve to be filled female, brilliant, and knowing it. That's unforgivable. How can you be a woman? You're supposed to be cooking in the kitchen. How can you be a woman and not only do everything you do right with what you know, but also be happy about it? They weren't open-minded in those days. I'm glad to see the church has changed somewhat. Not enough.
1: Rina, I'd love to talk to you a little bit about your work as a educator, not just as a teacher, but also just as a lifelong educator and inspirer uh, of people. You know, with, with the power of poetry, uh, just a little story. I was recently traveling to visit some friends down in uh, Nicaragua, and uh, I'd lived there for a while. And coming to the airport, one of the first things you saw, there was a a big sort of display of the products that Nicaragua was proudest of. And there was a, you know, cigars and there was Florida Canyon rum. And there was a big shelf of poetry books. of course. I had to think how many, how many countries are there where the first thing that they boast about to tourists coming to their country. um, Sure. There's the rum and the cigars, but here's our poets, right? Uh, and that must be something that you've been thinking about. How, how, how do we inspire uh, people to read poetry, knowing the numbers of, of how few do? Uh, and you obviously did that in New York public schools for, for decades.
2: I did. I sold poetry wherever I went. Um, it's all over Latin America, by the way, that attitude that the poet is somebody very special. And, uh, and that poetry itself is, is a gift. It's a gift that, and even people who don't know how to read, memorize poetry. I remember in, in the Dominican Republic having people who are breaking the leaves or who are, who are spreading the seed or whatever they're doing in the country who are clearly not learned people. And yet if they find out that you're a poet, they put the hoe down and the rake down right away. And they said, do you know this one? And they'll start spouting from memory. And it's not always wonderful poetry, but it is poetry. It's the art itself that they love, mm. art itself, and they memorize and they they know the names of different poets. It's it's uh, it's a wonderful thing. Um, I think it came from Spain. It's just something that that they brought with them from from the, the mother country, and from Portugal, and, and those of us who have some French in us as well, and. Uh, the whole Mediterranean, uh, the, the whole Mediterranean circle, there uh, is, is crazy about poetry, about art in general.
1: I that that, of course, has a centuries-long tradition behind it of people being moved by poetry, of feeling that it says something important about who they are and what their life is about.
2: The only way to spread it in other countries, like like this country, my second country, which I adore. Um, is to, is, to, is to show it to people. To tell them, look, this doesn't belong to any elite. It doesn't belong to any intellectual. It belongs to you. It belongs to all of us. This is part of our being human. And once you introduce it that way and you take the big fancy words out of it and you, you take the, uh, I don't have anything against academics the people who are academics, but there is something about the academic tradition that has gone wrong. It's a, it's a matter of, uh, of making poetry feel sacred, as if it were so sacred you can't touch it with your human hands. But that's not the case. It's for everybody. It's for the farmers, for the mother, It's for the child. It's, it's, for, it's for human beings. I, I tell my students, we all need poetry because it's the world's first gossip. And gossip is a necessity. You have to know. You have to have gossip because what is homer homer is nothing but a fantastic gossip he tells you things about the gods and goddesses their sex lives all the things they do wrong with and to other people all of the uh, the warfare and violence that they spread the infidelities of jupiter i mean how can you how can you not be interested in something that meaty it's it's it's, it's part of the life of the world and, and if you introduce it like that, if you don't tell them that poetry is absolutely noble, there is nothing in it that is outside of the sphere of nobility and holiness and so forth and so forth, they're bored right away. They don't even have to read it to be bored. It's how you introduce it that makes a difference. So it's gossip. I tell them it's stories well told and that it lets your imagination go hog wild because there again, it's Homer, Homer. I told him, you know what's wonderful about Homer, that he lies so well, that you believe him all the time. For example, there's somebody on the battlefield, the Trojan War, somebody's dying. And he's telling you how the the spear went through the neck and came out at the back, and it's absolutely gruesome. And and the the boys in class will think they're going to hate the poetry, they're thrilled. This is marvelous, this is real life. So you've you've got half the population right there. Homer knew how to do it. So I tell them, not only does he tell you that, how does he know he wasn't there? He's lying, he's making things up. Poetry is made up stuff, and it's wonderful. Tell them not only that, but then he tells you how the soul of the dying man flies out of the body, and he tells you what that soul is thinking. Know that, really. Plato was right, poets are all liars. (laughs) Are they dangerous to the state? No, they're dangerous. They're dangerous, maybe, to the people in the state who think that the only thing that matters is making money. Because beautifully told stories and lies that work will not do that. So it's it, P- Plato was right in a way because the, the practicality of the life of the state uh, is is opposed to this. I'm, I mean, I'm wasting time. I've wasted my whole life writing lies. <laughs> making people believe them and packing things into the li- those lies that would be good for them to think about. That's what you do. And, and uh, uh, I, I think that, uh, that you have to be, in some ways, uh, you have to be the devil's advocate. You do. I know. I don't, I don't. I don't. say that carelessly to people like you. You're very involved with with religion. I understand that, but sometimes you do have to say, "How do you know that? How do you believe that?" Join me in wondering about this. Join me in finding this out. Join me in digging. The poet is a digger.
1: Well, I, I, you know, we were talking about daughters uh, a little earlier uh, with Homer. I started for some reason my fourth grade daughter uh, got into the Iliad and she was an Iliad completionist. There was no, uh, death that I was not allowed to read aloud to her. And every day at five, the first thing that, uh, for about three months, the first thing, luckily we kind of managed to put a hold to it when Christmas came. It didn't seem, you know, seasonal, but, uh, everything had to be read. My wife was, uh, kind of worried, you know, it, it sounded really sketchy, some of it, but, uh, it was really fun. And uh, Ashley rekindled my own kind of love of Homer. You, you know, it's, it's interesting, Rena. you were saying um, how poetry is, is telling lies and yet you have a, a love for devotional poetry. How, how, how do those two things fit together?
2: Well, they tell lies all the time because for instance, St. John of the Cross tells lies about having met, he met Christ in secret one night because they were not married yet. They were just lovers at that point. They, the make-believe of poetry is wonderful, because that's the metaphor. And, and I think that, that religious poetry, devotional poetry, is full of metaphor. It's wonderful metaphor. It's telling you about, about the human spirit, but it's telling it to you as stories. And the stories need not be factually true. But when you have somebody like Homer or St. John or, or Sor Juana, who is going to tell you a truth disguised as a lie that turns out to be a truth, that's a wonderful thing. And that's what poetry does. He pretends that he's somebody's wife, St. John. But you see, this is why in Latin America, not only is poetry uh, uh, blissfully uh, common, but so is is faith, Mm -hmm. so is faith. There is something about the Latin American tradition, the mind of the Latin American who understands this as a story about God, Mm -hmm. who understands this as metaphor. They They don't even expect you to believe it as real life happening. They understand metaphor. They grew up on metaphor. And I think that's the difference. I think that's the difference. Hmm. They are satisfied with a relationship with something um, much too large, much too far to understand. But they understand it if they're told the story in metaphor.
1: And maybe uh, then the the difficulty that so many kind of contemporary Americans and, and other Westerners have with poetry maybe that desire for control, right? We we, we we want to control the metaphor rather than letting the, the metaphor-
2: Then you can't do that. You have to have that drop of doubt that gives you freedom to think. If you have no freedom to doubt, you have no freedom to think. And if you have no freedom to think, you can't understand poetry. Reena,
0: you mentioned that you had been recently watching our um, launch of our new graphic novel about the White Rose, The Uh, anti-Nazi student group um, who were executed in Munich in uh, 1943, and you had a bone to pick with us about the idea of martyrdom. Do you want to uh, go into it a little bit more about what your problem is with martyrdom and uh, why you're against it?
2: Oh, I loved loved seeing it because I admire those people no end. Not because they were prepared to be martyrs, but because they were prepared to do the right thing for other people. Yeah, I, I'm really not crazy about martyrdom. I think staying alive and doing the right thing for everybody who's still around you is so much more important and so much healthier and better. I don't want to die. I want to live long enough to do things.
0: I absolutely agree. I mean, one of the things that I was thinking about when we were, um, when we were talking about that, uh, especially talking about Christoph Probst, Max Probst's grandfather, Yes. yes. Um, he made it really clear that he was not looking to die. He was. His purpose was not dying. He oh, wanted to name. stay alive. He wanted to stay oh, alive for his name. family.
2: And you said something about the importance. I don't mean to argue with you, but I like <laughs> arguing. Uh, Go for it. You said something about the importance of teaching about martyrdom to children. And, and I don't think that's a good idea at all. Children should be taught the joy of life, not the joy of any kind of death. Death is the end of your opportunity to do things on this in this world. I don't know about the other one, but but in this world, it's so good to be alive because you can teach, you can you can take things to people who need them, you can comfort those who need comfort. You can't do that if you're dead. You look great if you're a martyr. I mean, it makes you look great to those who survive you. But I don't care about that. I want to be around to do things. And I think children are being invited to die in so many different ways these days. The drugs are around. Mm-hmm. The dreadful sex habits are around. All the, all the ways to, t- to take risks that are not worth taking are around. Mm-hmm. So many of the quote, unquote, heroes are around. And what do they do? They strap, they strap uh, uh, terrible things to their, themselves and they go among crowds and they blow up and they blow themselves up with other people. And you know, that's supposed to earn them all sorts of kudos in in some kind of heaven that I don't believe in. I think our business is here. Our business is to live and to make something good of our lives. I would not talk to children about the, the joy of martyrdom. I would rather die
0: One of the things that I can remember when I was first sort of thinking about Christianity, um, I read a... Do you know G.K. Chesterton? Okay. He has this line. I forget where it is. I've read so much Chesterton, including some really bad stuff. He's got some trash. Um, But he has this one line about how the suicide and the martyr are actually opposites. Because the suicide... Well, I mean, the case that he would make is that the suicide is someone who doesn't love life. And the martyr is someone who loves life so much um, that they're willing to...
2: Sorry, wrong. The martyr is not someone who loves life so long. He is is someone who loves his own positive appearance so much that he is willing to die to buy it. He wants the future to applaud him so badly that he's willing to give up his one chance to help his neighbor in order to have that. I, I couldn't do that. If somebody wanted to throw me into the ring with lions I would say whatever you want I will burn the incense in front of Diana's statue <laughs> but then I will go home and I will make food and spread it to the hungry because I don't care how I look after I'm dead I care how I do right now mm-hmm. so I am I'm, I'm not I'm not big on martyrdom I'm big on hard work <laughs>
1: So, we'll, we'll invite you back for our, our, our special martyrdom, um, our, 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 our martyrdom-themed um, podcast, which we'll have to do sometime properly. I'll
2: tell you who I really respect and love, the people who hid Jews in their attics and in their barns, because mm-hmm. they knew they were risking their lives and the lives of their children who were worth infinitely more than your own. And they did it anyway.
0: But those are people who were risking their lives because there was something else that they thought that was
2: valuable. But it was but it was not something else. It was someone else. Someone else. It was a human being. I'm so not I I would never die for a principle. Principles don't speak to me. They don't sit with me. Mm-hmm. I would die for a human being, but not for a principle. If I had to burn the incense, I would burn it. And then I'd say. Forgive me, I goofed. Are you mad at me? No, I want to have
0: you on the, I want to have you on a podcast about martyrdom as the anti-martyrdom speaker. I think that would be so much fun, Rina.
1: Thank you so much, Rena, and we're so proud to have you in our issue, and we're looking forward to uh, the first Rena Espalliat Poetry Award. Uh, the contest is... Open and uh, any of our listeners who are poets, uh, you're warmly welcome to participate uh, in the contest. And the first winners will be announced at the end of this coming summer, 2021. So, uh, so glad to meet you and thank you for joining us today, Rena. All
0: right, this is the part of the podcast where Pete and I give our recommendations for things that you should be uh, reading, or listening to, or watching, or going to or etc. Um and I've actually got two today. The first is um Daniel Larrison is a reporter um who has actually written for Plough in the past. He um has been covering essentially some of the things we've talked about today, America's Forever Wars, since forever. He has just been one of the people who has been most faithful about uh, not letting us kind of lose track of the fact that people are dying in our name and keep dying. Um, and he's got a really good Substack uh, email newsletter, essentially, uh, which uh, is daniallarrison.substack.com. And we will drop that link in the show notes. And I encourage you to sign up and follow him. And my other recommendation is um, there is a fourth century, I believe, poem by uh, Christian called Prudentius, Christian poet called Prudentius, called the, the Psychomachia, which is this extremely weird, kind of like, imagine a extended metaphor, like if, if you took one of Paul's military metaphors and like blew it up into this weird, vaguely Homeric, uh, extremely gruesome description of the Christian life, uh, the life of fighting for virtue um, as though the virtues were actual women, but actual women who were kind of like terrifyingly murderous. So it's a really weird and strange and interesting poem. And just in case you think that we're making this stuff about spiritual warfare as, a, you know, up.
1: No, we're not making it up. And I wish we had done sort of like a graphic novel, a rendering of the Psychomachia, and put it in our issue. And maybe that's something we should do sometime. And definitely, if you're going to substack, get uh, on Daniel Larison's list. He he needs uh, support for his work. My my recommendation is going to be quite different, but also kind of uh, related to what I was talking about with Rena earlier about raising kids. So our family read uh, *Watership Down* recently, uh, the 1972 novel by Richard Adams that's supposedly for kids, but is equally good for adults. Um, I can't recommend this book enough. It was just kept our whole family uh, absolutely transfixed and it's so beautifully written and it explores many of these themes of honor, war, loyalty, friendship, quest for meaning uh, in a way that is probably a lot more interesting than anything we said today.
0: That's all for this episode of The Plowcast. Give us a like, give us a rating, give us a review wherever you're listening to, to this or let us know what you think. Give us feedback. How can we do this better? What do you want? Um, Get in touch.
1: And check back next week as we discuss another kind of pro-life movement and talk with Anthony Barr about his article With Love We Shall Force Our Brothers, Prophetic Peacemaking with James Baldwin. Thanks for listening.